The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man. Yes, it is Chris and the Monty Man here broadcasting to you from... A beautiful Albany, Oregon, as well as... <clears throat> Chris, where are you at right this moment? I'm actually in Sparta, New Jersey, right as we speak. Sparta, New Jersey. And, and what is that in close facsimile to, for listeners that don't know where Sparta is? It's, it's about an hour west of New York City. Oh, that's, that's that close to New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. Well, all, all you New Yorkie, Yorkieites, or whatever... Uh, if this is the first time he, you've tuned into the show, welcome to Walking Through the Big Book, where we uh, are going through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, sentence by sentence, sometimes word by word, and chapter by chapter, uh, looking into this thing very possibly in a way that you've never done before. And I know, uh, just just as I say, and many people have said, every time that we are able to read this thing, we learn something new, or it reinforces something that we already knew that we can help carry the message to to others. So, uh, Chris, we left off last week in the middle of more about alcoholism, correct? That's right. We were we were just finishing up uh, the story of, of Jim. Uh, Bill Wilson uses various examples in this book uh, to, to uh, show from experience a point he wants to make. Right. And basically the point he's making with Jim is, uh, uh, he says basically here, he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could drink whiskey if he mixed it with milk. Yeah. Uh, you know, one <laughs> of the most difficult under- things to understand in addiction or alcoholism is the, the concept of powerlessness. If you've never experienced powerlessness yourself, you're n- it's very going to be very difficult for you to believe it even exists. This is why so many people say, "Why don't they just stop drinking?" <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the the problem. The problem is, is there are periods of insanity. They they call them insanity. I mean, Bill wasn't a psychiatrist. He wasn't a doctor. He did the best he could with uh, with uh, the concepts that were available to him as a as a shyster stockbroker, and he calls it insanity, and really, it, it really is. It's you know, insanity is uh, is not being able to have access to sound reasoning and judgment, mm-hmm. and certainly that happens with alcoholics. Uh, most alcoholics, at periods of time in their life, have made a real, real uh, uh, attempt at separating from alcohol. Uh, they've you know, who the who the heck would want to wake up? violently ill every morning and crash cars that night and then wake up violently ill that morning and lose their family that night. I mean, you know, n- nobody's going to make a decision to uh, to do that time and time again. There has to be there has to be something at work in the alcoholic uh, that's difficult to understand. And and that thing is the obsession of the mind. Uh, it, it's part of part of one's powerlessness. And I'll, I'll just start reading here. Um, whatever the pro- pre- precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? And then he goes on to say, you may think this is an extreme case. To us it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. What page are you on? 
I'm on page 37 at the top. Okay, right. Okay, gotcha. So the type the type of thinking he's talking about is is where the thinking mind uh, goes through a process that allows alcohol to be put back in the body. Um, if you were to if you were to sit down and do a list of pros and cons, okay, if I drink, you know, I'll feel a little better right now, but I'll lose my family, you know, my job, and my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you were if you had access to, to to that type of thinking, of course you wouldn't drink. But that's not what happens. Uh, we we the kind of thinking that happens is is basically where there's a strange mental blank spot or a subtle form of insanity mm-hmm. that precedes the first drink that allows us to put alcohol back in our body or sometimes convinces us it's a good idea. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves, in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? You know, one of the things that uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of people try to help you with, even people who are you know advising you, uh, maybe they're your spiritual advisor or whatever, is they advise you to just think through the drink. Or keep your memory uh, green. You know, just don't take a drink, no matter what. Uh, the the problem is, is those are ineffective. They're helpful for the alcohol abuser. They're not helpful for the person who's alcohol dependent mm-hmm. or, or or an alcoholic. That those those type of defenses against the first drink are are just not going to not not going to work. Uh, I can I can tell you a, a, a hundred times from my experience. Here's basically Monty what uh, what a typical day would look like for me in the late '80s. I would come to in the morning just you know feeling absolutely awful in the clothes that I went to bed in the, the night before. I would stagger up. If I was on the floor, I'd get up. If I was in the bed, I'd get up, and the alarm would be ringing because I need to go to work. Let's say it's a Tuesday or something. And I'd have to be at work at 8, so the alarm would go off at 7.30, and I'd stagger up, and, you know, almost delirious. I, I'd, I'd get into the bathroom. I'd, I'd do my vomiting calisthenics, you know. <laughs> I'd brush my teeth. I'd comb my hair, and I, I'd get out, and I'd get in the car and drive to work. Now, there'd be so much alcohol coming out of, coming out of my pores uh, that if I got pulled over, I would have gotten a DUI. But I hadn't had a drink since about 8 o'clock the night before. So I had I had almost twelve hours in between my, from my last drink to when I was driving, but I, but I polluted myself so much with vodka or bourbon that it would be coming out of my pores, and I would be swearing I am never ever going to drink again. I never want to feel this bad. I'm shaking. You know, I have I have high levels of anxiety. I'm nauseous. You, you, you know, just in total pain, mm-hmm. and I mean, it's like having a, a mega flu or something. I mean, and I would swear that today is the day. Today is the day I am not going to drink again. And I'd get to work, and I, you know, I, I was discombobulated. I, you know, I couldn't deal. It was very difficult for me to take the assignment and get on the road with it. Uh, but I would, and that whole morning, I, I would be convinced I'm never going to drink again. Now, if you would have put a lie detector on me at that point in time, uh, the polygraph expert would say, this guy's telling the truth. He's never going to drink again. You can bet money on it. Because I really meant it. Now, sometime around noon, I'd get half a sandwich down, I'd be rehydrated, and I'd start to feel a little bit human. And about 1 or 2 o'clock, I'd start to realize that that decision I made to never drink again, that, that's, that's a pretty serious decision. I need to think about this a little bit. You know, this might be an overreaction <laughs> to a problem I think I can handle. And by the time I'm heading home from work, I've convinced myself to stop at the liquor store to buy another uh, another quart of vodka or another quart of bourbon and get totally polluted yeah. uh, that night. Now, this was a cycle that I couldn't get out of. And what would happen was the only way I can describe it, it isn't a lack of willpower. It isn't changing my mind. I, I couldn't have changed my mind 
from the morning to the afternoon. What I recognize that as today was that was one of the subtle forms of insanity that has to happen in your thinking mind to allow you to drive to the liquor store and put more alcohol in your body. Your body needs more alcohol. Your spirit needs more alcohol. It doesn't care what it needs to do to convince you to do it. So that's that's the tricky part of alcoholism, and that's the part that most non-alcoholics don't understand, and most alcoholics don't understand. They don't understand they're caught up in something that's much bigger and much stronger than they are. A firm resolution to never drink again is a fine thing, and it may even last a period of time. You may even be able to get a couple weeks, months, or years out of it. But if you've crossed the line into alcoholism, you're not going to, there's going to be the time and the place is going to come, and you're going to put alcohol back in your body. And Bill is trying to explain this to us with one story after another, uh, uh, examining someone's experience with powerlessness. Because this is the crux of the problem. This is what's going to convince us we're in real trouble. If we place ourselves in the same category as the people he's talking about, there's nothing we can do on our own unaided will to stop drinking. We're caught up in something that's much more powerful than us. And the rest of the book, you know, uh, if you were to read chapter one and you were to read, uh, you know, chapter 20, uh, the first part is the problem. And, you know, the, the chapter 20 is, uh, is the goal, the goal of having a, a spiritual awakening. He's going to talk about how they got out of this, and there was a, a whole bunch of people that did. Anyway, I'll start back up. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of uh, a beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm, I'm a little nervous, so I'll ruin my life, you know. Yeah. Uh, he, he, you know, the boss was uh, upset with me today. I, I'm going to get even by making myself ill and, and getting to a point where I have alcohol poisoning. I mean, you know, if you really look at the decisions to go out and have a few with the boys and you're alcoholic, you uh, it, it's, it's insanely insufficient justification. We now see uh, that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little, little serious uh, or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. When I first, I'm going to read this next paragraph, but when I first read this, I didn't understand it, and I thought it was a silly example. Today, I believe it's a great example because we're not jaywalkers. This is the story of the jaywalker. Mm -hmm. I'm not a jaywalker. I don't, I don't jump in front of cars uh, to, to get a rush. Uh, so I don't understand it. So I think the guy's a nut. And that's the way people see alcoholic. They don't, uh, they're not alcoholic drinkers. So they think we're nuts, or we're morally defective. But right. this is a great example. This is a jaywalker. Our behavior is ab absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then desert, deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he's decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work, his wife gets a divorce, and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. 
Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You may think our illustration too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we, have met, we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? I want, you know, I love taking, uh, taking the knowledge or the examples out of this book and turning them into my own experience. Mm -hmm. Because if something, if I can relate these, um, uh, these principles to something out of my own experience, it makes it mine. And this is the story, this is the story I tell. Uh, when I'm talking about uh, my own personal uh, insanity with alcohol. When I was in, uh, I think it was, it was seventh grade. I was in seventh grade. And uh, I was a young little kid, you know, full of, uh, full, of, uh, uh, full of spunk. And I'd get in a little bit of trouble here or there. I was kind of a loner. Uh, but one of the things I like to do is uh, in the hallways of this school, were lockers, and the lockers had combinations right on the doors. And what you would do is if you saw one of your friends or something, you'd sneak up behind them and you'd slam their locker shut when they were getting their books out. And you'd, like, get them. And then they'd have to stop and go through the whole combination again to open up their locker. And meanwhile, you're laughing, running down the hall. Now, one of the people I used to do this with was, was named Huey. And Huey was a big guy. He was probably 180 pounds in seventh grade. He's just one of those big guys. And I, I would slam Huey's locker shut every once in a while, uh, you know, uh, just as a prank. And this one day I did it, and I think Huey was probably having a bad day. Because what he did was he turned around, he grabbed me by the shoulders, and he started slapping my head up against the locker. I'm 90 pounds. He's like 180 uh, and you know what they you know what they make walls of in school buildings? Cement. It's cement block, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So he he knocked me unconscious. I literally came to laying on the floor and classes had started. I was alone in the hall. And I had to get up and stagger to geometry or whatever whatever the heck it was. Just dazed out of my mind. I mean he concussed me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Now I got to tell you, I never, ever slammed Huey's locker shut after that day. Right. Okay. If I saw Huey uh, in the hallway when I'm walking down, he was in his locker, I would walk on the other side of the hall just in case somebody slammed his locker shut and he turned around and saw me. And, you know, no matter how much fun I got out of slamming his locker shut, I, I never, ever did it again. I had an adequate mental defense against slamming Huey's locker shut. I never had an adequate mental defense against p picking up the first drink. It would have been like me slamming his locker shut and getting knocked unconscious every day. Because that's what alcohol did to me. Alcohol knocked me unconscious every day. But I kept slamming the locker door shut. I didn't have access to that sound reasoning. Why, why not? Let me ask you this. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Okay, if you had that with the locker and it, and it caused you pain, <laughs> yes. Uh, why didn't you have it with the alcohol and it caused you pain? Well, it's you know it's the obsession of the mind. Um, I don't know what mental processes are involved in this. I'm not sure what research has been done, but an obsession is an obsession. Mm -hmm. An obsession is a thought that overrides all other thought systems. <clears throat> if you're obsessed with something, <clears throat> you can't get away with it. You know, there's different addictions out there, Monty. There's uh, gambling, uh, gambling addiction is getting very, very big. Yeah. And one of the things I, I do uh, for a living is I interview different experts in the fields of addiction and obsessive compulsive behavior. And this guy was telling me this one time that, that people go to the casinos and they're on a slot machine and they actually wear a catheter so that they don't have to go to the bathroom. They're so obsessed with running that machine that they'll stay there for a 24-hour period of time, never getting out of their seat. And they'll put a catheter in so that they don't urinate in their pants. I mean, that's nuts. Oh. There are kids <laughs> that, that parents are finding who have died playing a video game. They've yeah. just wasted away playing video games. 
those are obsessions. They're, 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 they're mental thought constructs that override everything else. And <clears throat> why they happen, you know, I really, I really don't know. But once, once you start to suffer from them, you need some serious help to, to overcome it. It's not something that you can just say, well, you know, it's not a good idea for me to drink. If you can do that, you're not alcoholic. Mm-hmm. The people who can say, I'll, I'll never drink again and never, ever drink again, are almost 99% of them are non-alcoholics. One of the symptoms of alcoholism is the obsession of the mind or the relapse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, that, and that can be, you can see that even in people that, that haven't drank for years but are still constantly thinking about it. Uh, you know, an, an obsession and uh, uh, an, uh, an obsession of the mind, the way the book puts it in here, means you're going drinking. The only thing that's going to stop you is availability if you can't find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you get the obsession of the mind, you're drinking. It's already too late. You're done. Uh, there are people. There are people who are preoccupied with the thoughts of drinking. And that's not the same thing. That's not the same thing. You, okay. You may hear they hear in a in a in a meeting or something, or or you know uh, somewhere you may say somebody says I I've had an obsession to drink for, or my obsession to drink hasn't been lifted in six months. They're using the wrong term because if they had the obsession uh, and they would never have it for for six months. If they had it for five minutes, they'd be driving to the liquor store. So I'm using I'm using the the definitions uh, the that are in in this book whether whether or not it's it's the current uh, psychological definition or, well, it or makes not sense. I, I just I just try to keep the words straight in, in this book and certainly people are preoccupied I preoccupied, think I yeah. think until you have the preoccupation lifted you know you're you're gonna uh, you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be thinking about alcohol a lot. I haven't had a drink in uh, in December. It'll be twenty years, but I wake up uh, having drunk dreams all the time. I still have drunk dreams all the time. I mean, I'm an I'm an alcoholic. Uh, you know, I'm pre-programmed. I'm set to default uh, to go uh, to to understand that some of those things can temporarily solve my problems. But I've been restored to sanity. It doesn't go into obsession. And I don't pick it up. Mm-hmm. Y- yes, I can think about it, but thinking about it, uh, thinking about it doesn't necessarily mean you're you're going to relapse. Does that make any sense? Yep, makes total sense. Good, good explanation. Okay, some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell me is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellow did, fellows did, nor are we likely to. For we understand ourselves so well after what you have told us that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. Now, what happens when I'm working with, uh, with people a lot is, is this happens. You know, uh, armed with information, people think that the information is power. Uh, uh, the, the problem is, is you're trying to use your mind that suffers from insanity to solve the problem. You can't solve the problem with a broken tool. Mm-hmm. So if all you have is information on alcoholism and you know everything there is about it, that's not a defense. I, I, was, doing some, uh, I was doing some volunteer work in a, in a treatment center uh, back in the 90s. And I would go there once a week uh, to to do my thing. And there was a guy in there that I knew I knew from high school, and I hadn't seen him in about fifteen twenty years. And I started talking to him. He he ended up being the cook at the rehab. He went through the rehab, and then he stayed there. Uh, he didn't feel safe leaving. And and I got a bit of his story. And here's here's basically what happened. He uh, he left uh, left America in the very early seventies to avoid the Vietnam War. He ended up up in Canada and lived there for about, you know, 20 years. And what happened in that period of time was he got sober, uh, got involved in uh, recovery, got involved in becoming an alcoholism counselor, and basically worked his way up to a very high-level position in the government 
in their alcoholism bureau or, or whatever Canada has, you know, the the, the Council on Alcoholism, whatever it mm-hmm. was. He, he was a very, very high-level um, officer in the government dealing with alcoholism and, and drug addiction. And what happened was he relapsed. Now, he knew as much as you could possibly know about alcoholism and about treatment and about drug addiction and about drug treatment. He was, he was one of the experts of all experts, and he ended up getting drunk. Okay, so knowledge is not going to protect you. Also, I got this statistic uh, from uh, from uh, Geraldine Delaney. Um, uh, I used to do, I, well, I still do some volunteer work up up at Elena Lodge, and and she uh, got started in uh, in treatment for alcoholism and drug addiction in the fifties. There's very few people who who know as much as her. You know, when when Betty Ford wanted to start her center, you know, she went to. Geraldine and mm-hmm. asked her, "How do you do it?" I mean, she 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 was friends with Bill Wilson and Lois. And I mean, she goes all the way back. And there's very few people who ha- had anywhere near the experience that she had. And I was sitting in a meeting with her one time, and uh, uh, you know, it was just a, a couple of us uh, in her office. And she said, uh, "She said, D- uh, Chris, do you know that four out of five uh, recovered uh, alcoholics, alcoholics in recovery that become alcoholism counselors relapse while they're counseling for alcoholism, four out of five of them. And I couldn't believe that because I I would think that if all day long all you're doing is treating for alcoholism, uh, that's going to mean something as far as the defense against against drinking. Mm -hmm. But it obviously doesn't. So self-knowledge is not the key. So a lot of people, you know, say, okay, great, thanks. Uh, I understand. I can never drink again. Thank you. Well, they don't get the part that, yeah, you, you can never drink again. That would make sense if you, if you stayed abstinent the rest of your life. That's a good goal. But you can't do that. <laughs> you, know, uh, you can't do that if you, if you leave us, if you really are alcoholic. And, and again, this book is always talking about the real alcoholic or the chronic alcoholic or the alcohol-dependent individual, someone that's gone down the scale pretty far. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Let's take another illustration. And, and he knows how, how difficult a concept this is to grasp. People in support groups don't even grasp. Mm-hmm. Pay, probably 80% of the people in, in all the 12-step support groups don't understand this because it's so difficult to internalize. Who wants to admit we're completely defeated and we're not going to be able to protect ourselves against the next drink? That's scary. Yeah. But uh, absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. So everything you learn is good if, if you turn what you learn into a recovery experience. It's more about doing than thinking. You can't think yourself sober. You have to act yourself sober. There are certain instructions in this book, and it's behavioral. And if you take these behavioral instructions, uh, and spiritual exercises, it leads to a place where you, uh, a place called recovered, where you can be safe and protected uh, from the next drink or the next drug. But if all you're doing is gathering information, you're in big trouble. Here's Fred. This is the story of Fred. Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home is happily married and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearances, he is stable, well-balanced individual, yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where, we had go- where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. He needed to be detoxed. 
it was his first appearance of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. You know, the sad thing is, Monty, uh, the detoxes get get easier sometimes for for, for us emotionally. Mm. I, I remember the first time I needed to to go to treatment. I was absolutely mortified. Uh, but what happens is, if it becomes habitual, uh, it gets uh, it gets easier sometimes to deal with the, the shame. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so. In spite of his character and standing, Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problems. And Monty, unfortunately, that's about 80% of them <laughs> yeah. who, uh, who show up. Yep. We told him what uh, we knew, knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet he was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been unusually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. Two things here. Uh, two things here. Uh, he talks about, um, about feeling like he's not as far advanced. But the other important thing is, Remember, these guys would do 12-step calls in the hospital. Right. And one of the things they taught him about was, um, uh, one of the things that they, they taught him about was the subtle form of insanity that would precede the first drink. Okay? That's an important thing to understand if you're going to do 12-step calls. You need to explain that. That's what they did in the old days, and that's how they got these people hooked into the 12-step program. Uh, in this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time, all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day, I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about it. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Now, I want to say this also. Uh, there's a lot of very, very well-meaning people that say a lot of things that seem to make a lot of sense. But one of them is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Have you heard that one, Monty? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Let's look. Let's look at Fred. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, he felt fine physically. He didn't have any problems or worries. He was pleased. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Was he hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? No, nope, he was doing pretty good. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired is, is not a good place to be. But not being hungry, angry, lonely, or tired is not a defense against the next drink. Very, very well put. Absolutely. Uh, I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. Think about this. He's been in the hospital, okay? He's ashamed of what happened to him. He had to go in to be detoxed. The jitters were basically delirium tremens. 
it's a it's a very dangerous physical and mental place to be. Mm-hmm. It's an awful, awful form of suffering. And this happened to him twice already. And as he crosses the, the hotel, uh, the threshold of the dining room, he decides to have a couple of cocktails. All right? <laughs> Where's the defense? Where's the sound reasoning? He didn't have access to it. Yeah. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me that a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty the next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. Isn't that wonderful? Wow. He talked to taxi driver and partying <laughs> with him for a couple of days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. So much for don't don't take a drink even if your butt falls off. Yeah. No matter what, just don't take a drink. Sometimes you don't even have any fight. Sometimes suddenly the thought crosses your mind. And when suddenly comes, you're done. You're, you, the obsession hits you and you're drinking. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink, because that's what happens to us. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I have learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said they had a problem, a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. I think I've said this on some of the uh, some of the past shows we've done, but there's a great line in the 12 and 12 <clears throat> in Step 1, Monty. It said, who among us wishes to admit complete defeat? Glass in hand, we've warped our minds to such a state that only an act of divine providence can relieve us of this obsession. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most powerful sentences Bill Wilson ever put together. Because i got to tell you, who among us wants to be this defeated? Who among us wants to be this powerful? And our thinking mind will try to convince us in many, many ways that this is not true for us. We're different. We can handle this. And we'll, and we'll, and we'll fall short on our recovery processes. We'll, we'll slowly stop participating in our recovery processes, and the time and the place will come and that mental obsession will return. This is why the relapse rate is so high in alcoholism. And, and we, we've talked about, I think you and I have talked about, uh, you know, how people will say, well, the first thing to go is I, I stopped going to meetings. And I think it was you who said you stopped going to meetings long before you stopped going to meetings. You stop going to meetings yeah. before you stop going to meetings. Yeah. And, and it, it's, just, it's a slow, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast, but it, it's, a, it's a slow backing away from the spiritual intensity that's needed to maintain the spiritual condition so that God can uh, uh, can keep you safe from protection. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a hard concept to understand. A lot of people don't like to hear that it's God. You know, I don't care what, what you call it, but I'll tell you what you need to do. If you're really alcoholic, if you're relapsing a lot, if you've been going to 12-step groups, if you've been in and out of rehabs and detoxes, and you really want to get over it, this is the stuff you have to do. If you do this stuff, you will recover. You know, these guys were low-bottom, horrible, terrible alcoholics. They're the type of alcoholics that were that they, they put them in insane asylums. You know, for 10 years, they're in and out of insane asylums. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if they, can, if they can figure it out, do the work, and get to reco- recovered, you know, w- you know, we can. Yeah. Um, two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and <laughs> asked me what I thought of, 
uh, if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. And if you're doing a good 12-step call, that's what you need to try to get to. You need to sniff out the last flicker of any individual's thought that they can, uh, they can handle, uh, handle alcohol or quitting alcohol on their own. Then they outlined the spiritual answer, the 12 steps, and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. Pay the money back? <laughs> and <then laughs> I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process... I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. When he made his third step decision, and, and back then the third step decision was uh, to seek God and go through the rest of the steps. That's what the third step decision was. Once he made that decision, he started to feel like his al alcoholic condition was removed. I don't know whether it was removed, but he certainly stayed sober long enough to get through the program of action. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Fred drank again. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure if I remember the history right. I, I used to know who all these people were. I, I, don't, I don't anymore. Uh, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I'm going to read this again. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Not just your alcoholism, but all your problems. Mm -hmm. Most people coming into detox and rehab have some problems, don't they, Monty? Oh, yeah. A little yeah. bit of drama going on. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and, I hope, more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one but I would not exchange its best moments for even the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. This is funny. These guys were so bad, Monty, that this guy only, they, they think he only felt the nip of the ringer. <laughs> imagine, how, imagine how bad most of the people were that were, that were, that were coming into their group at that time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow. this guy was, you know, uh, hospitalized with delirium tremens. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two, as to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you are 100% hopeless, apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution, no other solution but divine help. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Now, I'm going to go over that paragraph a little bit here. Okay. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. Okay, human power is not going to provide a defense. What are, what are some human powers? Ah, your sponsor. Sponsors, uh, spiritual advisors, your, counselors. Your group. Family members, wives, husbands. Yeah. You know, they, they are not, yeah, uh, the, the group, the group. Yeah. Um, his defense must come from a higher power. You know, Monty, like, it's good, it's good to understand this stuff, and it's great to do big book studies. But I'll tell you, big book studies are really a waste of time if you're an alcoholic. 
unless you take the information that they're giving you and follow the exercises they're giving you and turn it into your own personal experience. Mm. That's what recovery is about. Mm-hmm. So many people go to big book studies these days because they like to learn. They, they like to hear a solution and, you know, it's fun. And, you know, not every one of the people that go to those studies actually does what's being talked about. When you actually do the things uh, that are being talked about in this book, you get an experience. And the experience has been shown time and time and time again to produce a certain result. And the result is recovery. Now, so many people are scientific. You know, they, they, you know God is such, a, such an unfathomable concept to them. They just can't wrap their hands around it. And this just sounds so old New Agey. And, you know, I don't know if I, if I can, you know, I, I'm practical and, you know, uh, I'm a scientist or something. Well, <clears throat> here's what you do. Here's what you do if you're one of those people. You go through this book like it's a textbook. And you, you turn you turn every statement into a question to find out if it's from your own experience. You follow every exercise in it. You do every instruction to the best of your ability. And keep a notebook on it. Keep a scientific notebook on it. And take notes about the results. And, and, and you will find out something uh, very, very remarkable that you're going to find that you're going to get the results. You're going to get the results that you probably didn't think you were going to get, probably didn't understand you were going to get. But you can go through this scientifically if you want to. Uh, just go through it is basically what I would be saying. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good suggestion. And I, I do know, I, I do know people, even in meetings, what, you know, that will take some of this and try to apply it without the other parts. And then they don't understand why it doesn't work. You know, yeah. it, it, uh, it's, you it, know, the, it, it, recovery is not a cafeteria. Another thing that you hear yeah. a lot uh, is take what you want and leave the rest. Oh, I hate that. This, this <laughs> is not, this is not, uh, this is not a program of suggestions. This is a suggested program. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna uh, accept the program, you need need to accept the whole program. Right. Uh, if you take what you want and you leave the rest, you're going to be in trouble. Well, I'll go. I'll, I'll I'll give you an example. Let's say you you go over to a friend's house, Monty, and it and and they serve uh, cake, uh, chocolate cake for dessert. It's the absolute best chocolate cake you've ever tasted in your life. It's unbelievable. And you say, please, please, can I have the recipe for that cake? And and they reluctantly give you that recipe. And the next next weekend, you're going to bake one of those cakes. You remember how great it was, and you pull out the you pull out the instructions, and you start going through the instructions. And it says that you need to use Baker's chocolate. You don't have Baker's chocolate, but you got a couple of Hershey bars, so you throw that in. Then you're supposed to use a certain type of refined brown sugar. You don't have brown sugar, so you use regular sugar. And then it calls for a, a special flour, and you, you don't have that, but you have another kind of flour. Now, when you when you bake up that cake. What are you going to have? You're not going to have, the... have that wonderful no. cake that you had at your friend's house. You're going to have something that resembles a cake, but it's not going to be the same thing. That's what happens to people who come in, uh, uh, come into recovery, uh, come into a 12-step group and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the first step and I'm going to do the 12-step. And I'll do a little bit of four and a little bit of five. But, you know, I'm not really going to be praying and meditating. I don't like getting on my knees. And that meditation stuff is, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to sit there with incense burning in a lotus position. and med- That's not me. And, and they start finding reasons and excuses to not follow the whole program. What are, they're not going to have the recovered state that you're going to have if you do it all. It's going to be something different, and it may be insufficient to keep them keep them sober. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they may, they may stay sober for a long, long time, but at some point, I believe they'll either drink again or something worse. It's it's true. There's there's a lot of people around who have just been able to maintain a tenuous sobriety. And unfortunately, they don't even know what recover what, what the state of recovery is because they've never experienced because they've never done the steps. Yeah, and they are cranky and they're resentful and you know they're they're always fighting with uh, with someone or something, and they're just they're just you know literally, literally cranky. Now you know one of the promises in this book is you stop fighting alcohol or anything else. So when you see somebody fighting. 
you know that they haven't achieved a, a place of recovery. If they're arguing or running around, you know, trying to get their point across to everybody, you know that they're not at recovered because that's one of the promises uh, uh, inherent in, in the mm-hmm. step. I, I believe that's a 10th that's a step promise. So there's a lot of people who haven't uh, achieved, uh, achieved this state, and, you know, they don't know it. <laughs> yeah. You know what you don't know. Uh, how, do, how do you know what you're missing out on if you've never experienced it? <laughs> it's the kid saying, uh, I don't like broccoli. Have you ever tasted it? No. But I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> prior to investigation. Yeah, that's what it is. Absolutely. Oh well, great, Chris. Uh, this has been uh, chapter three is so awesome, and uh, next week we're going to be going into a chapter that I particularly just adore. This chapter, and uh, folks, it is entitled "We Agnostics." And for many of you, this is your favorite chapter. I've, I've heard a lot of people just rave about this chapter that are recovered alcoholics. So uh, be looking forward to that uh, this uh, next week. Chris, thank you. Monty, thank you. As always, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to, to be on your show. And I look forward to seeing you at Cape Cod next, yes, week, next weekend. Yes, we, we will be. And, and folks, don't worry. All programming will be as usual. We're doing a lot of work to make sure everything's up to date so we can... Uh, we can publish or broadcast that for you. So never fear. And we will be coming back from Cape Cod with some uh, interviews and some uh, sound bites and so forth. So be looking for that too. Really the largest uh, symposium on addictive behavior uh, with just a, just a plethora, I love that word, uh, <laughs> of folks in the field. Uh, it's going to be really, really good stuff. Well, Chris, thanks, buddy, and have a really good rest of the evening. Monty, you take care. All right. Next week, my friends, We Agnostics says once again, we walk through the big book. Bye-bye now. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. <laughs>